making some acquisitions of other companies, adding them into our platform, preparing for this new launch that's going to, you know, propel us into superstardom with this exciting, yeah, yeah, <laughs> incredibly broad software suite. And it was a horrific failure. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk. But to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest, Ran Fishkin. Ran, are you ready to rock? I am ready to rock. <laughs> well, let me introduce you to the audience. Rand Fishkin is CEO and co-founder of Spark Toro, author of Lost and Founder, and previously co-founded and ran Moz. And before I turn it over to you for a moment, I want to say that I came across you by listening to your book, Lost and Founder, and I highly recommend it to the listeners because it brings reality to the world of startup. And that's very rare because most of the books out there are cheerleading books telling us it's gonna be great, you're gonna make it, you're the best, make this marketing plan. And the truth is, is that for most people, in most cases, starting a business, starting a tech company, starting this type of thing is a landmine, possibly a trap. And it, before you do it, read this book. The last thing I just wanna highlight is, you know, the lasting imprint that you have you know, left at Moz, which I think is worth mentioning. And I think in the book, you talk about it a bit, but the idea, and I was just going on the website and looking around and you call it tag fee. And that is transparent, authentic, generous, fun, empathetic, and exceptional. And one of the things that I would say that I have experienced from listening to your book is that you truly are an open book. All right, take a minute and fill any further tidbits about your life. Sure, sure. Thank you, Andrew. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, so I, I have one of the weirdest stories of starting a tech startup that, it, that exists out there. I dropped out of college, which is quite common for tech founders, but I started working with my mom, Jillian. And Jillian and I, my, my mom and I are actually the co-founders of Moz. I believe mother and son being the least likely founding partnership of a venture-backed startup out there. There's uh, plenty of husband and wife teams, plenty of two friends in a garage, not a lot of mom and son operations. But that being said, you know, Moz started initially as a consulting business and then switched to software, raised $1.1 million and in, in 2007, and then grew very, very quickly for seven years, raised another couple rounds of funding in 2012 and again in 2016. And I, I was there until 2018 when I left to start this new company, SparkToro, which is not venture-backed. And I, I suspect we, we might talk a little bit about that. <laughs> I have a feeling. But before we go on, mom, shall we start a business together? Let's do it. All right. Now, I just want to, I want to ask just a couple of quick questions before we get into the, uh, because I just listened to your story. I mean, the first thing is, uh, you know, one of the questions that, that I, I've got is kind of thinking about 
when I listen to your story, I listen to, and I observe what you've done. One of the things is that you've, you've written a tremendous amount. You talked about how in the beginning you wrote five days a week and you just, you're relentless. And then when you go to Sparturo, you go to, you know, see like the latest posts. It's like, you are a prolific writer. My question to you that I just wanted to understand is that what if somebody is not a prolific writer? Yeah. My, my advice for people who are attempting to do marketing for any kind of business, right? Mm. I talk to folks of all, all kinds on this stuff. And my advice is not to follow in my footsteps, right? Content creation, written content creation might not be your passion or interest. It might not be what you're great at. Andrew, I, I don't, we don't know each other tremendously mm. well, but you obviously have a passion and interest and, and, an ability with podcasting, right? With interviewing people and talking to them, extracting consistently interesting stories from individuals. That is a very powerful way of doing marketing. I know plenty of folks, many of them younger than us, who are exceptional at visual content. And they use platforms like Instagram and Pinterest mm. to help expand their audience. I know folks who are great at video and do it with YouTube. I know folks who are great at PR and they do it with not their own websites or platforms, right? They're talking to reporters and at events and those kinds of things. I know folks who are terrible at all of these things and do it exclusively with advertising. And none of these are wrong choices, right? The, the, the advice that I would give you isn't do what I did. It's find something you're passionate about where you can add unique value different from your competitors and where your audience actually wants to pay attention. You mm. nail those three, you're gonna do great marketing. That's great advice, great advice. Okay, well, I'm gonna have more questions, but before that, let's get into the main question and that's now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever, ever, ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, Tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Ironically, the worst investment I ever made was $18 million of someone else's money into me. I know that, I know that sounds odd, right? How could, Rand, how could you getting $18 million of venture capital in this case be a terrible investment for your personal finances and your company's success. And, and the answer is that when you raise venture capital, you are making a commitment to a certain type of growth and to a growth path that is not easy to get off, nor is it easy to liquidate. So in my case, we are, let's go back to the, the circumstances of this terrible investment for me, even though I wasn't the one putting money in. Um, and and it, is, it is 2012. Moz, the company that I co-founded with my mom, Jillian and I each own 30, I think 36% or so of the company at the time. And we have been looking for to grow our, our funding, right? To raise money for a few years now. We turned down an acquisition offer in 2011 from HubSpot, the very well-known mm. marketing platform company out of Boston. And we you know, have been growing at 100% year over year for, I think at this point, five or six years in a row. So the business is doing, let's see, I think $11 million in revenue on track to be around 19 or 20 by the end of the year. And we... Um, 
we close this round of $18 million, 12 million of it comes from a new investor. Oh, sorry, 15 of it comes from a new investor, Foundry Group out of Colorado, and 3 million of it comes from our previous investor, Ignition Partners, which is based here in Seattle. And we're, we're gonna use this money ostensibly to grow our business from just providing search engine optimization tools and software to, to that industry into growing our business to be able to target many different aspects of web marketing, you know, email marketing, content marketing, PR and press, social media marketing, right? All, all of these new forms that we, have, that we have not served previously. And over the course of the next, it didn't take very long, over the course of the next two years, we basically you know, cut off all growth of our software platform, our, our, our products don't improve, right? They stagnate while our competitors keep making investments. We're pouring, pouring all of our new money into hiring a huge team and trying to figure out our new management structures and growing our offices and making some acquisitions of other companies, adding them into our platform, preparing for this new launch that's going to you know, propel us into superstardom with this exciting, yeah, yeah, <laughs> incredibly broad software suite. And it was a horrific failure, right? Growth rate fell from, I think, 100% year over year to 50%, and then from 50% to 25%. Now, we're still growing, still mm. profitable, but it is a huge strain on the company and on me. I ended up, I think, not being able to handle it well. I, mm. I had... Uh, you know, an emotional mental breakdown and ended up stepping down from the company, replacing myself with the chief operating officer, my long-term, long-time COO, Sarah Bird, who, who's still the CEO today at Moz. And then over the next few years, you know, Moz really struggled to try and get growth back. It, it never even got to the 25% growth rate uh, again. So really plateaued in terms of growth. And at the same time, at the same time that Moz made all these, you know, many different investments, it was surpassed by two direct competitors, one called SEMrush out of St. Petersburg in Russia, one called AHREFs, which I think was originally in Ukraine and then moved to, um, gosh, I want to say Taiwan or Singapore, maybe Singapore, I think. Mm -hmm. And those, you know, those businesses were purely focused on search marketing, SEO and SEM. They really ended up taking a ton of the market share that Moz had originally had. A lot of longtime Moz customers went over to those platforms. And yeah, over the last few years, you know, Moz has tried to recover that. It's tried to refocus on SEO after a big round of layoffs in 2016. Mm -hmm. But that reality. That's amazing. 2016, when you think about the after effects of that strategic decision, yeah, it's lasting. Yeah, just brutal. Oh, just just brutal. I still, I think the company, gosh, what is it? Almost seven years later. Yeah, literally seven years later, it has not recovered from that series of poor decisions. And uh, one question is, can can you remember like the day when you thought this isn't working anymore? I'm not working anymore. This was, you know, I, I've got to, I, something has to change. Hmm. Yeah, I can remember, I can remember definitely one of my darkest ever days and moments. Weirdly, ironically, I was at a, I was speaking at a conference. I, I do a lot of conferences and events. It's one of the big ways I sort of built up my 
you know, the blog and the presence for Moz and all of that customers and all that. I was at a conference in Miami, Florida. It was absolutely stunning. It was on South Beach. They put us up in a lovely hotel. I was there with my wife. You know, I had friends around that I hadn't seen in a long time. And, and Moz was technically, right? Technically, it was doing very well. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm tragically sad because, you know, growth rate has dropped from 100% to 50%, right? So, mm-hmm. but I, I can see on the horizon, I, I think this, this sort of just inability to execute and change direction and maybe the, the early signs that I've made a bad decision and I'm going to keep doubling down on it. Right? Just the sunk cost fallacy is is weighing in my mind and I can't break free. I can't break free. I remember I had a call with our engineering team, right? The, the team leads on, on the engineering department from the engineering department and then another call with the executive team right after that. And just this, this kind of heartbreaking series of questions about how long are things going to take, right? How long is it going to take for us to get this, this mm-hmm. product that we've been designing out to market? Why, why has the time frame suddenly gone from three months away to 10 months away? Is there anything that we can do about that? Okay, the, t- the existing team can't do anything about that. What are alternatives and what are options? And you know, then everybody felt like there was no option. Right? We're just trapped. Ugh. And the, the reality was, right, the reality was that we had fallen prey to one of the, I think, the technology world, the software world, the business world's just, just worst myths that we tell ourselves, which is that once you, you know, once you have made an investment and made a decision and gone down a path, you have to keep pursuing that path until you see it through to determine whether it was the right decision or the wrong decision. Mm. And in reality, the obvious, you know, the obvious thing in hindsight, I, I don't understand why I or why none of my more experienced executives who are on my team or my board members, for God's sake, my board members, what are they there for if not to tell me I'm crazy and to stop me from doing this dumb stuff? No one said, stop it right now. Stop right. all of this right now. Release one small thing that puts you in this direction and see if that works. And then another small thing that puts you in this direction and see if that works. What is the smallest possible tiny thing? Don't even consider doing anything bigger than that until you've released these small series of things and made sure, validated that your market really wants this mm. and that you can, you're capable of building it. And, and I don't wanna hear anything else, right? That, that, is, that should have been the- You kids stop messing around in there. Get your yeah. homework done. <laughs> that's, that's right. I don't want to see all of your homework. I want to see one math problem on page one of the first math assignment done. And when you've done that, we can talk about the second one. That reminds me of a, a, what my mother said when, when I was such a, a rowdy young kid at a young age. When I didn't want to do my homework, my mom got the, the timer in the kitchen and she said it for five minutes. She said, could you do your homework for five minutes? And, and, and that was, that was where, what worked. So, well, let's, let's talk about the lessons that you learned from this experience. Yeah, there, there are a great many. I think the biggest one, the biggest one for me is that structure and incentives matter more than almost everything else, mm. right? The reason that I felt locked into a mindset 
around how to build things, around how to release, around what we were going to do and what we should do and why, absolutely stemmed from the idea that if Moz reached, you know, at the time it was whatever, 20 some million dollars, if it doubled its revenue, that would be useless. And if it doubled that revenue again and got to $80 million, that would be nearly useless. It really had to double revenue three times, hopefully in the next five to seven years before it would be considered anything close to a success. And so every, every other pathway, right? Every, every idea around, well, let's do small things to validate the market. Let's improve churn a little bit. Let's improve company growth a little bit. Let's, you know, be a little bit more appealing to this segment of the market. None of those felt like they were on the table to me, mm. right? And that is not, that's not the fault of my investors or my board. Yeah. Maybe they could have been more forceful with me and encouraging me not to think that way, right? But they certainly weren't pushing that, that uh, hubris, that impetus came from me, right? And it, and it came from me because I studied and watched what hundreds, thousands of other tech mm. uh, CEOs and entrepreneurs in my world, right? In my network, in the, in the press, on the pages of TechCrunch and Hacker News and, and the New York Times, right? What, what they were doing, how they had had success and hadn't. Mm. And... Right? right. I knew yeah. I knew how venture capital worked. The idea is you put money into a hundred companies, ninety-five of them die trying. A few of them are the you know rocket ships that become billion dollar companies, and that's how the model works. Yeah. And so your goal is pour on the rocket fuel, light it, start the engine, and probably see if it disintegrates. <laughs> yeah. yeah. See if it disintegrates. Exactly. Exactly. Ah. Uh. You know, there's just so much, you know, having listened to your story on the, on the audio book and then listening to this, I wrote down a lot of notes. So let me summarize what I take away from this. There's a few things. The first one is, you know, this growth concept, you know, what, what I would call almost addiction to growth. Yeah. And one of the things that I've, I've learned as, as a financial analyst analyzing companies for now almost 30 years is that things seem easier, you know, on paper than they really are. And what I mean by that is that, you know, just a good example of my coffee business for Coffee Works, like we're, we're manufacturer, we're a B2B coffee supplier. And people say to us, you know, why don't you go sell on the internet? It's like, it seems like we can do that, but the competency within the organization, the, the, all of that stuff, we just don't, we don't have it. And so, okay, you can hire outside, you can spend a lot of money, but I think that this, this is a great lesson for, for when you're either analyzing a business, you're running a business, is that pushing a management team to go too far off of where, they are, where their strength is, is probably a much less successful strategy than trying to get them to focus in and double down on where they have strength. Yes. So I, I think that's my first lesson. Uh, companies just can't do everything. The second thing is that, you know, and you've mentioned the word trap, we talked about before the, the interview, startup, the startup world is a trap. You are simply trapped. Yeah. And you can have all the dreams that you want of billion dollar company and, you know, you're playing a lottery, but for the majority of people, it's pain and despair and it's a trap. And in your book, you talk about how even when you get your revenue up to 10, 20, 30, 40 million, you still can't extract as much value as it appears from that. So that's the second point is that small business is a trap. So be very careful when you go in. 
The other one is board. And I'm going to speak to the idea of management versus board. Now, my best friend, Dale, he runs the coffee business. He's the CEO. He's the manager. I'm the board member. And I'm, you know, basically the way I look at it is the job of management is growth. The job of a board is risk. When a board gets caught up in growth, they betray their obligation to the bigger organization. Hmm. Let the CEO and the management team propose the growth and let them grow. But you as a board member need to protect the whole organization and think about the risks. And I think that here, you know, you're, you're kind of screaming out now to say, I wish that a board member would have said, stop, wait, hold on. There's huge risks to what we're doing. So for everybody listening out there, for your own job as a manager, your job as a board member, make sure you understand the role of risk assessment, risk management. And then the last thing that I want to say is that as an analyst, I've been an analyst now for almost 30 years. I've visited so many companies with fund managers and myself, and I've met with so many CEOs and I've looked at so many businesses. And sometimes CEOs will ask me a question and they'll say, you know, what, what one piece of advice would you give? And I'd say, never listen to analysts. <laughs> they never ran the business. They don't know about running the business. And they're going to throw things at you. Now, of course, I don't mean never, but I'm trying to make it strong. But the idea is, is that do what's right for you. Listen to the different opinions, but do not be dragged into hitting quarterly profit numbers and all that. And half of this problem with the profit, you know, focus on short term is the problem of weak CEOs that could be spending time building competitive advantage. Instead, they're chasing their tail because they're being pushed by investors. Do not let investors push you. So those are some of my takeaways, which is a lot. Anything that you'd add? Yeah, no, I, I, I love that. I think the, the biggest one for me by far is in 2007, when I, when I signed that very first you know, venture deal, I did not realize what I was signing up for. And I think that, I think that very, very few CEOs and startup founders in particular, right? Startup founders are, we are media biased. We are, we're swimming in an ocean that where the water feels like it is venture capital and, you know, angel investors that lead to venture capital and accelerators that lead to venture capital and venture capital means you get the press coverage and you get the congratulations and you get to be on stages and you get invited to events and your friends tell you that you're impressive and pursuing that instead of serving your customers, your employees, and your own happiness is, is a trap. It, it really is a trap. And I, I think that, I think there's a small nugget, a kernel of a start of an, a movement against that, right? That mm. there's, there's something in between, finally, finally, there's something in between being completely bootstrapped, right? Trying to build the mm. business with your own funds or, or your family's funds and building a business with institutional investor capital that's seeking, you know, whatever, yep. 10x returns in a certain lifespan. There are starting to be things in the middle, but we need to amplify and encourage and invest in those stories to be told so that, you know, the next generation of folks like you and me have examples to look to. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, what, what really drew me to your book and what I continue to appreciate in your book is that you are sending out a warning shot that 
startup founders should really listen to. And it's part of what we're doing on this podcast is saying, listen to the experience of others and use that as, you know, I, one of the quotes I put up here is, you know, only a fool learns from their own mistakes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Love that one. Oh. All right. So based on what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Let's just say they're, they're lining up, they're getting ready. You know, it's, it's getting close to that signing and what yeah, advice? I, I, think, I think it is a beautiful thing to recognize what you are signing up for and commit wholeheartedly to one, to one path or another, mm -hmm. right? So look, if venture capital absolutely appeals to you, just understand why in your own psychology, in your own mind, why is it because you don't believe as I didn't, right? Like Andrew, the biggest reason when I, when I reflect on why did I take venture? The biggest reason that I took it is because I believed in my heart of hearts that I would not be good enough, that I was a failure if I couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. Not because it was the best choice for my business, not because it was the right path, not because I had analyzed and ran, run the numbers and looked at all, but because I believed that I would always think lesser of myself, right? That Rand Fishkin would judge Rand Fishkin as being a weak, C, a weak CEO, yep, right? Yep, yep. Not good enough founder. He couldn't play with the big boys, right? He wasn't ready for that league if I didn't go raise money. Yep. And if that is your driving motivation, and you're accepting of it, well, okay. I, I think that's a pretty damn unhealthy motivation. I think it's an emotionally immature motivation. And I was, you know, in my early 20s when I did this, right? So, yeah. but at least you know, because I didn't. It took me a decade, a dozen years to understand why I was doing the things I was doing. Self-reflection, self-knowledge. Oh, what a superpower. Self-awareness, that's, that's the journey. That's yep. the journey you want to jump on. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, one person I interviewed a long time ago said, I, and I asked him this question, I said, you know, you lost so much in this particular decision that you made. What advice would you give? And he said, my advice is just do it. And I was like, what? He's like, you know, in some ways you just can't, you know, you got to do it. But my point is, is that, you know, now there's so much information out there get all that information together in your mind. And if it, right, you know, if you have awareness, the word that you use, have awareness of what you're doing. There's so much more resources compared to when you sign that deal. That's There's right. so much more information out there. There's the dark side and the, you know, the bright side at that time, there was a mainly, there's not as much dark side. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Profitability. <laughs> yeah, SparkToro just launched, what is it, two months and seven days ago. Mm. So we are, uh, we're trying to get to a profitable, sustainable business. You know, we've, we've raised money in a very unique kind of way that lets us distribute profits, which most, yep. most companies don't do at, at, at our kind of scale and size and focus. But that's, that's the big thing, right? Profitability is freedom. It is an ability to grow and invest in the business. It is, it means infinite runway. It means never having to raise more money if we don't want to. And I think it helps us to prove the model, right? And one of my goals, right? One of the reasons, like the reason I wrote Lost and Founder mm. is, you know, not to get on the speaking circuit. I was already on the speaking circuit, but really to help other entrepreneurs not have to make the same mistakes that I did. 
Yep. And I think one of the best things that we can do for the generations to come, right, as, as individuals, and, and you do this extraordinarily well, right, is to, to teach people about the alternatives, right, to show them what has gone right and wrong in our own pasts and to illuminate a brighter future for them. And, and one of the ways I hope to do that is with our funding model, right, to show people that there is another way and that they can, you know, whatever, come and download our open source docs and, and use our system if they want, but to consider those things and profitability is part of that path. Yeah, profitability equals freedom. Yay. As someone, people say to me, well, I'm not really in this for the profit. And I say, well, you will be when you're losing money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you're not uh, in it for the loss. The leverage that profitability brings, right? You get to say no to things you don't want to do. Yeah. Even, even if those things might be like right technical financial things for your business, you still get to say no. Yeah. And what the, what the heck is money? Mm. Money is not its own goal. Money is there to give you and your employees and your team and your customers the lives and the solutions to problems that, that you want. Yep. What do you want to see in the world? Money can help you accomplish that, right? And amplify that. And so if you are on a quest that is purely financial, I think you're missing the bigger picture of what money's there for, yep. right? It's there to give you that freedom. It's and a tool. For the people that say, I'm not in it for money, and then and, and I say, well, you will be when you lose. What I also say to them is that, well, why don't you just do it this way? Why don't you make a profitable business, make a million bucks and give it away to your employees, give it away to your best charity. Start there. I dare you. <laughs> I mean, there are, yeah, well, certainly, you know, I think that one of the, one of the most frustrating things for me is, is reconciling my own participation in a, you know, a capitalist economy, which, yeah. which I really enjoy, right? I like the competition. Yeah. I like attracting customers. I like solving their problems. I like getting paid for it, right? I like seeing my bank account go up and reconciling that with the immense injustice and immorality that capitalism brings to, you know, societies around the world, including the United States and trying, how do you reconcile those? And I think that, you know, I think as a business owner and someone who is attempting to participate one of the great ways that you can do that is by building a business that rewards not only yourself. Mm -hmm. Yep. And you get, and that's what profitability does. It gives you the freedom to choose who's rewarded and how. And I think one last thing I would mention on that is the idea that I learned when I was a young kid, which is the idea of free market competition. <laughs> and, and ultimately <laughs> oh, it's what brutal. A misnomer. It's brutal when you are exposed to free market competition you must focus on bringing value to your customer. And what we have now is a massive hybrid where we have government and other methods used to reduce the level of competition. I mean, in America, we, don't even, we have the price of money is fixed by the Fed. I mean, like our number one market of product, which is money, we accept the fact that it's not a free market. If it was a free market, a lot of bad things that happened to us probably wouldn't have happened. But that's another story for another podcast. I want to ask one little thing about Spark Turo, which is that for the listeners out there that would like to take advantage of what you offer on Spark Turo, can you just, just tell them like what would be the number one thing for the person to go there and do, try, buy, test? What, what would be the number one thing you would recommend? Yeah, yeah. Spark Turo is thankfully, incredibly simple, 
right? The goal behind it is just to let anyone perform a search for their audience, however you might describe your audience, right? My audience is architects in Los Angeles. My audience is chemical engineers in Bangladesh, right? And SparkToro can tell you what they listen to, read, watch, pay attention to, visit, and to what degree, so that you can go do marketing of whatever kind in, what, in those places to reach your audience effectively. And uh, if folks want to give it a spin, you can go to sparktoro.com, just the homepage, and sign up for free. You can run the searches. You can run uh, 10 free searches a month, mm. and it'll show, it'll show you results. If I can be helpful, you're welcome to drop me a line, rand at sparktoro.com. Got it. And also, you mentioned about your innovative method of raising capital. You have some information on the site about that yes. also. Yeah, so a few startups and an accelerator program have already used the SparkToro funding methodology. You can Google SparkToro funding and you will find a blog post we wrote with the details of that and a version of our docs that have been open sourced by our attorney so you can fill in the blanks with your own numbers and people and all of that and raise money in a very innovative but potentially powerful way. We raised 1.3 million with it couple of other startups that have used it have raised between 250 and 500,000, but you could raise any amount. Got it. All right, listeners, now you know where to go after this interview. Go to SparkToro and learn what they've got up there. In addition, I'll have all the show notes, everything in the show notes so you can go there. But now there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we end, Rand, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our audience and our listeners are learning to win as a result. And I also want to congratulate you for being one of the brave ones. And I say brave ones because most people say no. I'd prefer not to come on the show. I'd prefer to go on a show where I talk about all my wins and my best decisions. But you are one of the rare few that has turned your worst investment into your best teaching moment, which you've done through the podcast and you've done through the book and you're sharing on your platforms. So do you have any parting words for the audience? Yeah, I, I would just like to tell folks who might be listening that if the world around you is guiding you in a particular direction, right? If the sources that you read and follow, the people that you listen to and admire are pushing you to go in one, one particular direction, it pays to explore the alternatives. That is a great message to leave it with. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our wealth, fellow risk takers. I'll see you on the upside.